Take your Bible, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. That's where we are today in our journey through Isaiah. We're looking at verses of hope from Isaiah. Today, the hope for ultimate healing. Here's the key concept for this morning. God's justice has been perfectly served in love. His justice has been perfectly served in love. Isaiah 53 shows us that love in action, maybe more than any other chapter in the Bible. And as you find Isaiah 53, I want to remind you, of course, reflect with you that Christianity is a faith that rests on the miraculous. We see miracles all throughout the Scriptures, from the creation out of nothing when God simply speaks all that is into being, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the sun standing still in the midst of the battle. And of course, the miracles of Jesus as He walked the earth, calming the storms, providing healing and help, multiplying loaves and fishes. We love reading the stories of when God enters our reality, our limited reality with His power. But the central miracle of the Bible sometimes isn't counted as a miracle at all. It's given to us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't often think about that transaction as miraculous, but God has stepped into our lives, demonstrated His power, and shown us His love. God justifies the ungodly. It means that God takes bad people and declares them good. That He takes guilty people and declares them innocent. It is a miraculous reclassification. A miraculous reordering of our identity. So the question we start with today is this. How is it that God does that? And doesn't become bad himself. How is it that he does that and it doesn't seem like he's taking sin lightly? Well, the answer to that question comes from Isaiah chapter 53. This is the place where it's explained. This chapter has been called the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament prophets. It is the sacred chamber where the sufferings of Christ are pictured and foretold. Our focus first today is verse 5, but I, I want to start reading in verse 3. So you follow along as I, I read. Isaiah says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Now, the first thing you note about reading this passage is that Isaiah says all of this prophecy in the past tense. Why is that? Isaiah is speaking about what will be fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. That's more than, well, around 750 years in Isaiah's future. Yet he describes what's happening in this distant future from him in the past tense. 
That might be off-putting for some people. Maybe you don't quite understand. Or maybe you've read this passage so often that it doesn't even occur to you. But something special is happening here. It's a literary device called the prophetic past. We see it in the prophets, but, but this is, this is a, a perfect example of it. The prophetic past is the prophet's way of giving a prophecy that he knows is in the future, but he speaks of it as a past tense. In other words, saying in the method of his communication, this prophecy is absolutely certain to take place. It is so certain to take place that I'm speaking of it as if it has already happened. It's like the prophet is saying, this is as good as done. Bank on it. This is absolutely surely going to happen. He will suffer. Jesus is not named in this passage. You're initially left with a question as you read Isaiah 53, and that is, well, who is this man of sorrows that Isaiah is talking about? It just so happens that in Acts chapter 8, we meet a man who's asking that exact same question. He's an Ethiopian official, a follower of the one true God. He has traveled to Jerusalem and worshiped at the temple. This was probably like the high point of his life. And he's gone to the temple, he's worshiped at the temple, and he's going now back to Ethiopia, down the dusty roads. He's in a caravan, and as he's in this caravan of travelers, he's in his own chariot, and he's reading this passage out loud. And as he's reading this passage out loud, Philip, the apostles, walking that same road, he hears him. They engage in a conversation. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, after the man asks, who is this prophet talking about? Philip said, then Philip began that very, with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah was speaking about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth here, 750 years prior to his birth. And Philip takes this passage and travels the length of Scripture with this Ethiopian and explains that the one true God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And the prophecy that Isaiah looked forward to has been fulfilled. And this, Isaiah 53, introduces us to this Messiah that's coming. He introduces us to, to an overview not only of His mission but also kind of of himself, what he's like. Go to verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He begins to describe this Messiah that's coming, and he's making the point that you're not going to, in order to identify the Messiah, don't look for someone you expect to look like a king. He's not going to come as a normal king. In fact, there's nothing going to be too unusual about this particular king. Jesus was born to a working class family, delivered in a barn, not in a palace. Throughout his life, he had no property. He had no home. His earliest disciples were fishermen. His most ardent followers were the poor. He died crucified as a criminal between two criminals, and they did not have a grave to bury him in. He was buried in someone else's tomb. Now, this is not the kind of person anyone would expect to be the greatest king of all. But Isaiah has described him in advance. 
In verse 2, when he talks about his appearance, he's not trying to tell us what Jesus will look like, emphasizing his appearance, as much as he's not going to have the splendor that you would think a king would have. He's not going to have the pomp and the royalty that people would expect a king to have. He will not look like your expectation, in other words. And then when you describe his reputation, his reputation is not going to be that good. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's striking to me to see that twice in that one verse he uses the word despised because that's a powerful word. That is a strong word. I don't think that there has ever been anybody in my life that I have despised that I knew personally. You know, maybe I'm put off by somebody's behavior or maybe I just dislike something about that person over there, so I'm not going to spend so much time with them or whatever, but to despise them. Webster says to despise means to regard beneath one's notice. The Hebrew means to hold in utter contempt. Twice in this verse, Isaiah reminds us that that's the way people felt about Jesus. And Jesus loved those who despised him. He loved his enemies. He suffered because of those who despised him. He suffered for those who despised him. And he endured much. And what he endured begins to be described in verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus endured an ordeal for us. An ordeal is a difficulty that we're made to endure for an end. We use that word very flippantly these days, ordeal. You go to Costco and you have to stand in a long line. By the time you get home, you say, oh boy, what an ordeal. Right? But these are really ordeals that Jesus goes through. And the first thing that he mentions is the ordeal of the way that people thought about him during his suffering. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him. In other words, Isaiah is saying that when Jesus is on the cross, when he's going through his sufferings, the people don't know that he's doing a noble deed. Nobody looked at that and said, oh boy, this is a wonderful thing for humanity. Most people, casual observers, they classified Jesus in the category of criminal that they would expect to see going through these kinds of suffering. The first impression is that he must deserve all this. That's why he's getting it. He wouldn't be being crucified if he didn't deserve it. It's all part of the ordeal. Nothing extraordinary. He's a condemned prisoner. This is what we do with condemned prisoners. Sure, it's barbaric. Yes, it's horrible. But all crucifixions are barbaric and horrible. They always were. And then you read the sign on top of the cross, King of the Jews. And to the casual observer, they say, well, sure. I mean, look, he must have done something really bad to deserve this. And surely he must deserve it if they're killing him. 
But then verse 5 clears that up. But He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Part of the ordeal is not being realized, being misunderstood. He who's acting out of pure love, being counted as a criminal. It was all for us. And for us, He endured the brutality of that process. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, he did not open, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is silent, so He did not open His mouth. The word oppressed in verse 7 is a word that was used to describe the way a slave owner would mistreat a slave. They had total control of the slaves. And if I wanted to beat the slave, I would oppress him just out of anger, out of spite or whatever. It puts the person who's being beaten in that position of a slave. And then it goes on to say he was afflicted. That, that word actually adds an element of shame. So not only is he being oppressed as a slave, shame is being brought upon him. And in all of that, given all that he was, he didn't open his mouth. In Jesus, we see the triumph of silence. I hope you notice that as you read the crucifixion accounts. He answers some of the trial's questions. He answers a little bit of the, of the, uh, of the questions that are thrown at him. For, for the most part, he retains a powerful quietness as he moves through those mock trials of the Sanhedrin and then before Pilate. And the reason is because if your intention is to endure and not escape, you don't have to make excuses. You don't have to argue back. You don't have to give and take. He shows that He is the master of the circumstances simply by keeping silent and going through the process that was predicted. Because it was always predicted. Paul made the connection. He wants us to know that this was always the point of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the primary point. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What that means is in accordance with the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures had always been talking about. Christ dying for our sins. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing towards this last sacrifice. In those blood sacrifices of the Old Testament, God was teaching us some lessons. First of all, He was teaching us a lesson that sin is a grievous error and punishment is the result. Blood was spilled. He's teaching us the lesson that a substitute can take the place of the guilty. Those animals were innocent, but they were the sacrifice. But they were an inadequate sacrifice. All the blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament did was cover the sins of the people. didn't wash them away. All it did was push the guilt down. It didn't take the guilt away. It didn't wash us white as snow. God understood all the time, uh, for all time, that the only way that we would be absolutely forgiven and that His justice be served is that He pour out His wrath, wrath on sin on Himself. That was the plan. And so, He suffered in our place. Verse 5, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. That's the purpose of it all. 
endured by Him as a substitute for us so that we can reap the benefits. And what are the benefits? The benefits are peace with God, shalom and healing, Rafa. Shalom and Rafa are ours. And He did it all for sheep who stray. Look at verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A sheep that strays has left the care of the shepherd. A sheep that strays has left the safety of the flock and is placing itself at great risk out there in the wilderness. And the sheep strays thinking it's going to find greener pastures, thinking that there'll be better food in this different direction. Sheep do not go out looking for adventure. They don't wander from the flock thinking to themselves, well, you know, maybe there's a wolf out there that I can beat up and protect my brothers and sisters. No, there are no superhero sheep, right? And they don't stray because they're emotionally needy. They don't stray thinking to themselves, you know, I need some alone time. I've got to get away from these other sheep. No, that's not it at all. The sheep nibble themselves away, seeking the next small little satisfaction, the next thing that they consume. Each nibble takes them a little further from the shepherd, a little further from the flock. And it's what an apt picture it is for human beings who wander from God. It's all about consumption. I want a little bit of this. So that looks fun over there. That looks tasty. Maybe I should try that. And soon, nibble by nibble by nibble, we're far from where we ought to be and far from the care of the shepherd. Jesus suffers for the sheep that wander, and that's all of us. And these sheep that wander despised him, and he, stu- he suffers in their place. And suffering is really not a, not a deep enough word. But our words run out after a while when we describe what Jesus went through for us. Just in this passage, you can scan down it, we have the words, He was smitten, He was stricken, He was pierced, He was crushed, He was punished, He was wounded, He was afflicted. All of those words just try to come around the sense of what Jesus actually endured for us. Crucifixion was the most horrible way to die. There never has been a state-sanctioned way to execute criminals that's worse than crucifixion. Put that in your brain. Yet, this is the very time in history that Jesus came. I think that's significant, and I think that's correspondent. Jesus picked the moment when the way He would suffer for our sins pictured how much He loves us and how bad our sins really are. Imagine hanging by your wrist with a nail through your wrist on a cross. And and the only way to to relieve the pressure of that spike through your wrist is to lift up on your feet, but your feet are also nailed to the cross. And if you don't push up on your feet, you can't breathe. So breathing becomes impossibly painful. It explains, as you picture that crucifixion scene, it explains why Jesus' words from the cross are very brief little spurts of air when he has pushed up to breathe. When with little, very little breath, he just speaks quickly. And he's going through agony. He's going through what we call excruciating agony. In fact, that's what excruciating means. 
He said, the suffering of crucifixion was so bad that we had to make up a word for it. The word excruciating comes from the Latin cruciare, which means to crucify. We made up a word to describe how bad this really was, the pain of crucifixion. And he's suffering all of that in our place, the innocent for the guilty. Now, an honest and fair mind has to ask the question, how is it right for an innocent person to suffer in the place of a guilty person? How is it fair that somebody who's never sinned suffers for the sins of somebody else? That doesn't seem right. And of course, it's not right if that innocent one was a random person picked simply to bear the punishment of somebody else. But what makes it right is this. The one who bears our guilt is the judge whose justice is being served. You see, God dishonoring sin cannot be ignored. God cannot just wave a hand and say, well, I'm going to wish sin away. Justice demands something else. But out of love, he recognizes that he will never be able to really have that justice serve unless he's the one who suffers in our place. So remember, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God, God the Father God are all united in the mystery of the Trinity, and that just judge takes the guilt and the pain and the punishment on himself in our place. And he's doing that always motivated by love. Motivated by love. Justice is served, but love is the motivation. And that love is for you and for me. Here's a maybe a crude illustration. Imagine that you have a little dog that you love, a little fluffy dog, and you take that dog to, to the park one day, and some guy comes over and starts kicking your dog. And on top of that, he picks up a stick and he starts whacking your dog. You're upset, right? Why are you upset? Are you upset because, hey, you know, there's a law against animal cruelty and you're violating the law right now, pal. Do you call out to him in your anger, hey, you're breaking the law? Or, or, or are you upset because something that you love and cherish is being damaged by the actions of that person? And oh yeah, they're violating the law. See, that's God's position towards us. He loves us and he knows that sin hurts us. He loves us and he put in place rules and regulations, laws, that inside of which we live protected. But as we violate them, we live outside of His protection. The laws are there for our good. It's almost like we're the ones hitting ourselves with the stick. And God comes along and He says, I want to help you. I don't want you to do that. Why? Because I love you. But i got to deal with the law-breaking. But if I were to deal with the law-breaking on you, you would never bear up. I'll deal, deal with it on myself. Punishment happens, prompted by love, and the punishment comes back to God. And with all that in mind, He takes our place. And why did He do all this? Well, what He says in verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. He does, it, he, he does it so that we can gain shalom and rafa, to bring us peace with God and to heal us. Now, the title of this message is Hope for Ultimate Healing, because now I want to bring you to a point of some theological division in the church and try to answer it for you. There's a difference of opinion in terms of how we are to read the end of verse 5. 
Is the healing that God earned for us, that Jesus earned for us on the cross, is the healing only spiritual? Or is it physical? Or is it both? There's some controversy about that point. I believe that it is both. I believe that Jesus on the cross both healed our spiritual diseases as well as our physical diseases. But there is controversy between, because in a reaction to what we see on television with the, with the health and wealth gospel, some teachers will look at this and say, no, no, the healing is only spiritual. We cannot uh, expect physical healing as a result of, of Jesus' work on the cross. But I think that's wrong. And it's wrong because the Bible tells me different. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, Matthew's telling the story of Jesus healing many. It says, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to Him, and He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew's reading from the Greek version of Isaiah here. And he shows us in his word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that physical healing is a part of what Isaiah was talking about in the task of the Messiah. Physical healing was at least part of it. Matthew is saying forgiveness and physical healing go together. And that's just what Isaiah was saying. Peace and healing. And it shouldn't be a surprise because really all of our diseases come as a result of the fall. All of our diseases come because of the experience of sin. And when Jesus reverses those results, all of the results are reversed. However, if you think that means that as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you just pray hard enough, God is obligated to erase that cancer tumor. If you just pray hard enough and have enough faith, God is obligated to eradicate your diabetes or clear up your acne. If you think that's the case, think again. Because here's where our word of faith brethren, our name it and claim it brethren, are in error. And here's what I mean. Due to Christ's work on the cross, I know by faith that I'm bound for heaven. But I'm not in heaven yet. Some of what Christ has earned for me on the cross has yet to come to pass, has yet to be perfectly manifested. Some I am experiencing now. Just like I cannot claim the perfect experience of heaven here and now, even though I know that's where I'm going, in the same way I cannot claim the perfect physical healing here and now, even though I know it awaits me in glory. I can ask for it, but I cannot claim it. And this makes a difference. Maybe you've watched some Word of Faith preachers on TV, and when they pray for healing, it's almost like they're demanding it from God. It's because they misunderstand this. They don't recognize that it's not all going to happen here and now. There's some part that awaits us in glory. Maybe you're, you're listening to those prayers and you say, you know, Pastor Mark never prays like that. It sounds pretty good. But there's a falsehood there. It, uh, it raises an expectation that it was never meant to be made. Right now, I can't demand perfect health, just like I can't demand from God that my life be heaven on earth. One day it will come in the great tomorrow. But what I can do is ask, plead, 
for mercy and for healing. You see, God does heal. He absolutely does heal. He, does, he heals miraculously. He heals through the work of physicians. He, he heals in marvelous, uh, multifaceted ways. But He doesn't heal because we can claim it. He heals because we ask for it. And sometimes His will is that it will not happen until we get to heaven. But God does heal. Every time we pray for healing here, it's a request, not a demand. When we pray for healing, we're asking for it. We're not claiming it. And all of our prayers are made under the, overarching, under the overarching will of God. We always must say, if it is your will, because God, I want your will more than anything else. I want you to do your will. So yes, ultimate healing is right here in the atonement. Jesus has earned it for us, both physical and spiritual healing. He suffered so that we don't have to. And one day, all diseases, physical and spiritual, will be eradicated by the power of the Lord. Because the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, what is our part? Our part is simply to believe and to trust. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would be those who walk by faith. We thank You that You care so much that You were willing to endure greatly for us. And Lord, we are reminded that this happened at the cross, and now we're soon going to be taking communion together, a final and a further reminder of all that You endured for us. Help us live in the light of that love. Help us behave as those who are so wonderfully loved, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The team is back and lead us in a song taking us to communion. Sing with us as the team leads. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all
praise. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Your wounds have paid our ransom. As we come to our simple communion service, at the end of our service, um, it might be that you're watching from home. If you have elements uh, that you're going to take communion with us, that's great. If not, we understand that, and uh, we will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in. For those of us who are here, I hope you have your individual uh, communing, uh, communion packet. I'm going to continue on this theme that is so important that we understand that Jesus died a substitutionary death for us. Seen from the New Testament, for instance, in Galatians, Paul writes it this way, Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins. Jesus did not go to the cross for offending the Jews. He did not go to the cross because He rebelled against the Romans. He went to the cross to take our place, to pay our penalty, so that we could be washed clean. We are the guilty. He is the spotless. We are the sinners. He is the wonderful. We are the condemned. He is the pure. So these elements are open to all those who know Christ as Savior. And you're saying, I know that was for me in my place, and I want to live for Him. I'm going to give you a couple moments simply to quietly pray and prepare yourself for communion. A time of confession, a time of repentance. And as you do that, just ponder these words from 1 Peter. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Let's pray. Lord, we don't come to this moment because we think we deserve forgiveness or somehow that we have earned mercy. We come to this moment realizing that we don't, but that you will freely give forgiveness and mercy. We come to this moment because we are those who have already received it, and we rejoice in that reception. And we pause to tangibly remember your sacrifice in the way that you have asked us to. And we thank you, Lord, for all that we have in you. Bless us as we seek to honor you. In your name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul looked back in the upper room where Jesus instituted this ceremony that we call communion, and he described the scene to us. He said, The Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you peel off that top cellophane, you can find the wafer. Let's eat together. And he continues saying, in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. If you peel back that foil layer, we'll be able to drink together, remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us do so.
Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. It's tempting to take things for granted that we hear over and over again. But truly, you suffered in our place, and we rejoice in your love. We pray that as we leave this place, we are able to reflect that love to others. Help us do that. And we want to be identified by the way that we live as property of Jesus. Thank you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. We're going to stand and have the benediction, but before we do that, we're going to sing a song. So go ahead and stand up. Let's sing a song. Do you know the first verse of Fairest Lord Jesus? If you don't, fake it, please. You want to see everybody's mouths moving? Let's sing. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man, the Son, Thee will I cherish, Thee will I honor, Thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Lord Jesus, help us to cherish You. Help us to honor You. Help us to demonstrate that because of Your love and Your sacrifice, because the grave couldn't hold You, we are saved today and we are walking in the light of Your love. Help us do that, we pray. In this week ahead, watch over us in Your grace and in Your mercy. Enable us to represent You well. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.